If you look at life expectancy at age 25 for people with a college degree, it's like the best in of all the other rich countries in the world. It looks like Japan, it looks like Switzerland. And what's all pulling us down and making us really the sick man of all the rich countries is this increasing mortality among, if you like, the working class. And I think that cuts across rates. So we're seeing this not as a black-white issue, not as a poor-rich issue, but as an issue between people who have a college degree and people who don't. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. A few weeks ago, I started opening the podcast with summaries of chapters of my new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Now, last week, I was arguing that the nature of the ideology that has become so powerful in the United States and Britain and around many parts of the Western world does not consist in cultural Marxism, as some critics on the right say, uh, but rather that it actually had its starting point with uh, postmodernist thinkers, including Michel Foucault. Now, in 1971, there was an interesting exchange between a former guest on the podcast here, Noam Chomsky, and Michel Foucault, in which famously Chomsky gave an account of human nature and tried to argue how we could build a society that would be more conformable with it. And Foucault said, hang on a second, you should be really careful because that society may end up being just as constraining as the last one. We cannot know anything about such a thing as human nature. Chomsky on this podcast said that he had never met somebody so amoral, not immoral, but amoral in his life. I mentioned this famous exchange because it helps to understand how the thinkers that were influenced by Foucault tried to reinfuse politics into his thought. And in particular, there was a set of postcolonial thinkers who were motivated to critique and deconstruct some of the claims of Western superiority that had justified colonialism, but to do that in a way that could guide them towards a more active politics than Foucault thought wise or possible. And these are the thinkers which I talk about in the second chapter of the book, which I'm going to share with you today. The first of them is Edward Said, a professor of literature with Palestinian roots who teaches at Columbia University for many decades, who uses Foucault's concept of discourse critique to understand the ways in which the West had claimed to be superior to the Orient for many decades, for many centuries, justifying colonial oppression and other injustices. But rather than merely criticizing discourses in the kind of way in which Foucault would have suggested, Said, by the way, appraises Foucault as one of the few thinkers again and again in his book, Said goes on to say that there's something unsatisfactory about that, that we have to go beyond that. The point is not just to recognize those discourses, it is to invert them. It is to use it to empower formerly colonized people to fight back against the power that this discourse had exerted over them. So it starts inspiring the kind of applied form of discourse critique that is now part and partial of academia and part and partial of our cultural life. If you want to do something for gender equality or you want to fight against various forms of sexism and misogyny, one natural way to do that is to critique or to praise the Barbie movie, to engage in battle with our predominant cultural discourses. That idea comes from the applied form of discourse critique championed by Edward Said. There's also a second thinker who's trying to grapple with the legacy of postmodernist thought in figuring out how to be a political actor. And that is Gayatri Spivak. Spivak makes her name as a translator of key French postmodernists like Jacques Derrida. She basically believes in the critique of essentialist categories of identity which made people like Foucault skeptical even of the very idea 
of homosexuality. But she is horrified when she sees Foucault and Gilles Deleuze say in an exchange that intellectuals should no longer speak for the oppressed, that it's time for workers in France to speak for themselves. According to Spivak, that may be possible for the relatively privileged, white, educated workers in France. It may not be possible for people in the country she was born and raised in, in India, um, who have less power, who may not have had at the time access to education. She thinks that somebody needs to speak for the subaltern, as she calls them, because they cannot speak for themselves. And so she suggests a very fecund idea of strategic essentialism. Essentialist accounts of identity, she argues, are wrong in theory, but in practice, for strategic purposes, we should often act as though they were true. And in particular, we should therefore encourage people, encourage the subaltern or the oppressed, to identify themselves by those group categories so that they can fight back and take on injustice. It is this form of strategic essentialism that helps to inspire many of the progressive pedagogical practices that are common in the United States today. It helps to explain why teachers in many elite private schools in the United States now go into classrooms of six or seven or eight-year-olds, split the kids up, telling them the white kids go over there, the Latino kids go over there, the Asian American kids go over there, the black kids go over there. And as part of a progressive education, we're trying to give them the right, quote-unquote, racial identity, to make them define themselves more by the group of which they are a part. That is the logic of strategic essentialism, which Spivak later came to see critically taken to its extremes. So here we start to see how the response to and the elaboration of the postmodernist ideas that started with Foucault give rise to some of the themes of what we'll recognize as the identity synthesis. These forms of discourse critique as political battle and a form of strategic essentialism which goes on to inspire these kind of separatist practices in progressive spaces today. Next week, I will tell you about how the story carries on with the rise of critical race theory. If you want to read along, I promise there's a lot more detail, a lot more subtlety in the book. Please buy The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. My guest today is Angus Deaton. Angus is the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at Princeton. He is the author of a number of important books, including The Great Escape and uh, Deaths of Despair and The Future of Capitalism with Anne Case, as well as most recently Economics in America, an Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. He is also the winner of a Nobel Prize in Economics. Angus and I had a conversation about a lot of his work, about why it is that deaths of despair are ravaging America today, lowering the country's life expectancy for the first time in centuries. And unlike the experience of just about any other industrialized country other than Scotland, we talked about why the core predictor of economic outcomes, the core economic and social divide in the United States, according to him, is not between the 80th and the 20th percentile of the income distribution, is not between members of different ethnic groups, but is between those who have four-year college degrees and those who don't. And we talk finally about whether or not money makes you happy and the kind of happiness it might or might not be able to buy. Angus Deaton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So it strikes me that one of the just really fundamental facts about the United States today that everybody is sort of aware of, but we don't spend enough time really thinking through, is things like the opioid epidemic, the finding that you've made that life expectancy overall for Americans is uh, decreasing 
and that a lot of this seems to be driven by what you're calling deaths of despair. What makes this moment so remarkable in the broader span of our economic history and what helps to explain it? Why, why is it that for centuries life expectancy went up in the United States and across industrialized countries and now suddenly we're seeing this really quite striking aberration from that? Let me rephrase the question a little bit, which is probably not what you want me to do. But I see that you've been teaching in the United States for a long time, that you were an undergraduate in England, and that's what they teach you in England, that if you want to get a first, you have to question the question. The question, the question. The why is always harder than the what, right? But the what can take you a long way by itself. So the fact that we don't really know why life expectancy improved so much for so long. We got sort of used to it. But if you go into that literature, it's amazingly diverse and controversial. You know, was it nutrition? Was it drugs? My mother told me that the reason we all lived longer was because doctors had invented these magic drugs and so on. And we now know that that's not true, but we don't really know what it was. And there's a lot of debate out there. So it's not so puzzling if we have this turnaround now and we have some difficulty explaining what it is. So a lot of what Anne and I have done is just sort of documenting this fact, which other people have documented too. There was three years in a row when overall life expectancy fell. You've obviously got what happened during COVID, which doesn't require a lot of explanation by itself. And also these horrible deaths of despair, which are suicides, drug overdoses, and alcoholism, a huge increase in alcoholism during the pandemic deaths from alcoholism. So if you want causes, some of those are just water that people are dying of. And to us, suicides have always been a big clue in this story because of Durkheim and, you know, the story that when society is really not working for people, um, that's when you begin to get suicides. And so suicide is just a terrible indicator that something has terribly gone wrong. But also, and I think this is getting almost no attention among policymakers and very little in the press, that the increase in deaths during this period is almost entirely among people who don't have a four-year college degree. So that for the third of the adult population that has a four-year college degree, they're pretty much exempt from all these horrors. And in fact, if you look at life expectancy at age 25 for people with a college degree, it's like the best in of all the other rich countries in the world. It looks like Japan, <laughs> it looks like Switzerland. And what's all pulling us down and making us really the sick man of all the rich countries is this increasing mortality among, if you like, the working class. And I think that cuts across rates. So we're seeing this not as a black-white issue, not as a poor-rich issue, but if an issue between people who have a college degree and people who don't. So then to come back to your original question, there's something gone wrong with working class America. And it's not hard to list a bunch of things that democracy is not working very well for them. The neoliberal consensus wasn't good for them. And the share of profits in GDP is rising at the expense of working people. It's sort of like an old fashioned class war. So you're a little coy about ascribing causality here, but between the term you phrased of the depths of despair and this emphasis on the vast discrepancy between college-educated, non-college-educated Americans on those fronts, there's a kind of implicit story that emerges, which is that, you know, this is not about 70 years ago, we invented penicillin and that made a huge advance. And perhaps today, the advances in medicine are not as important as they were. It used to be that people had malnutrition and now everybody in society is well enough. They're not dying of starvation and so on. It is a kind of story about uh, social and economic inclusion. And it seems that in America, there is this great risk. I assume that's why you mentioned Durkheim of social anomie of a lack of belonging, of a lack of access even to basic health care, we don't have the means and so on. And if you have a four-year college degree, you're likely protected from that. You likely have 
richer social networks. You likely have better access to healthcare. You likely are in a social milieu that encourages better lifestyle habits, where there's fewer drugs around. I'm trying to extrapolate from these stories, but what is that story? You know, why is it that there's these depths of despair, and why is it that they're concentrated among people who don't have those four-year college degrees? Well, there's a lot of stories out there, and the question is picking out the ones that make sense and the ones that don't. And one clue all along is that you're not getting these deaths of despair in other rich countries, except one, the one where I come from, which is Scotland, which has a death rate that's very similar to what's happening in Britain. So it can't really be globalization or it can't really be automation because they have globalization in Germany and they have automation in France and all of these things. So it can't be that in some simple terms. So one of the things that's a big deal here is that we don't have much of a safety net when these things come along. So if you get deindustrialization, there's some protection in Europe, there's much less protection here, and it's much less complete. We also don't let drug companies sell heroin on the streets, essentially, which is what happened at the beginning of the opioid epidemic, where Purdue Pharmaceutical pushed OxyContin very hard and addicted a lot of people. And then when the doctors realized what they'd been doing, they backed away and they were replaced by Mexican drug dealers or illegal drugs. But once the horse was out of the barn, it was very hard to stop it running away. That's been part of it. Alcohol has been very important in this thing too. So that's been runaway increase in deaths from alcoholic poisoning, especially during the pandemic. But you want to go a step further back than that and just say, if we're doing a Durkheim on this, what are the pillars of social support that didn't really help people? So people have been drifting away from churches. Um, that's much more rapid among people without a BA than it is with people with a BA. My colleague here, Catherine Eden, has written about people who are not attached to any institutions anymore. So they're not part of organized religion, the social networks that are very important, and which economists have not been very good at writing about, whereas sociologists and other people have seen this, I think, much more clearly. You know, it used to be that Americans were famous. If you lost your job in one city, you got on your bike or got on your horse or whatever it was and went off to another more successful city. That is not happening to the same extent. And it's perhaps not so hard to see why, which is that many people have family members who have jobs. So it makes it very hard to move. The, the successful cities have become incredibly expensive through nimbyism and all the rest of it. So it's actually very hard for people who've lost their job in one failing city to move somewhere else. There's also in economics, and it's being taken much more seriously than it used to be, a very rapidly growing literature on corporate misbehavior that you might say in terms of monopsony, people holding wages, firms holding wages done artificially. And of course, the lack of mobility makes that much easier to do. There's a lot of worry about addiction. And also, one of the things that drives me nuts is I can't watch a sports program on television anymore without being advertised to gamble on that thing. And that's something that's been passed by state legislatures over and over again under pressure from the gambling industry. There are very smart people who are writing about addiction on social media and so on. And then there's a line of work which I like, not our work, but done by Jennifer Karras Montes in Syracuse and her collaborators about how state legislatures are passing laws put together in corporate interests, which are typically very bad for or ignore the health of working class people. So they're passing laws that prevent minimum wages rising, and their right to work laws. There are laws about guns, there are laws about all that sort of pollution and so on. And Jacob Grumbach has a book on laboratories against democracy, I think it's called, which documents how some of that is happening. So there seem to be just a lot of forces sort of ganging up on working class people in America and separating them off. And it's sometimes you think of them as sheep waiting to be sheared sort of idea by corporate interests. 
So a lot of that is very convincing to me, and it's a rich account of many different causal factors that went into creating this situation. I'm still struck, though, by the remark you made a few minutes ago that this is happening in the United States and it's happening in the United Kingdom and it's not happening in other places. Only in Scotland, not in the rest of the United Kingdom. Just in Scotland. So I guess I'm trying to understand how and why that is. And some of these political factors don't quite seem to explain that, right? I mean, when you look at the United Kingdom, for example, if anything, it would seem that Scotland has more left-wing governance, a political party in charge that claims to care more about working people or less affluent people than the government that the United Kingdom as a whole has had for 10 years. When I compare the United States to a place like Italy, you've had this tremendous economic stagnation in Italy for 30 years very, very limited wages and opportunities for a big swath of a society, and governments that have by and large been quite uninterested in all kinds of ways in the economic and other well-being of their citizens, deeply corrupt governments, and so on. And yet, you know, you have this contrast between, let's say, on the one hand, Italy, which seems to have less of that social dysfunction and therefore leading to less of those kinds of depths of despair and the United States. Or you have this contrast within the United Kingdom between Scotland and the other nations. So what explains why some societies seem better able to hold together whatever bases of social connection and cooperation we need to avoid those kinds of depths of despair at a huge scale? And when other societies, I suppose, the United States and Scotland, have had more trouble doing so. You're asking a lot. You want a sort of equation which says, if I put all these things in here, I'll tell you how many deaths of despair there are. And it doesn't, unfortunately, work that way. Let me say a word about Scotland. A lot of the Scots would disagree with what you say, because after all, the government in Edinburgh has limited powers. And the overrulers are people who Scots don't like very much and who did not vote for and there's been conservative governments in London for many, many years now. And there are very few conservative politicians elected in Scotland. So there's a layer there that you could argue. You know, in Scotland, very angry about Brexit, for example, because they see themselves as European and they hate the fact that this division has been enforced on them in a way that they wouldn't like. So you could argue that there's a real democratic deficit in Scotland that didn't exist in England. I can't tell you about Italy, but there are other things here that are very different. So here's one of them, which I didn't mention before, which is we have a healthcare system that costs twice as much as the second most expensive healthcare system in the world. Switzerland is second. It spends about 12% of GDP. We're spending nearly 20% of GDP on healthcare. And so that money comes out of other things that would be available otherwise. And one of those things is we fund this through employer contributions, at least until you're old enough to qualify for Medicare. And uh, no other country does that. Now, effectively, your health insurance, my health insurance, and the janitor's health insurance cost about the same because you're talking about insuring a body, not insuring an income. And that means that it's like a flat tax on employment in business and that depresses wages. And it's one of the main reasons we think that America is different from other rich countries, that we've destroyed good jobs. I mean, almost no large corporation in America anymore has food service workers, has security service, you know, has cleaners, janitors, all the rest of it. Those have all been hired out. And if I were on the far right, I would argue they've all been hired out to people who are hiring illegal immigrants under the counter and so on. So there's all that story there, but it's certainly been a huge force in destroying good jobs for working class Americans. And when Anna and I were at Deaths of Despair, that was one of the big things we focused on exactly for the sort of reasons you're talking about, which is why doesn't this happen elsewhere in Europe? And this is one of the big things they don't have elsewhere in Europe, as well as they don't have opioid epidemics because they don't let the pharma companies push these things out of the street. And that seems like a convincing explanation to me. It's interesting that you say that you used to use this kind of economic 
metric of the 80th percentile versus the 20th percentile of income. And of course, a lot of people nowadays, when we think about inequality in America, think about it mostly in terms of what's come to be known as equity, to say as racial disparities. What's the case for why that educational disparity is something that you've come to focus on more and more, that you really think stands at the core of this? And what explains why that particular social distinction is so economically and culturally salient in the United States, right? I mean, my understanding is that, for example, the college bonus, just in purely financial terms, of the surplus of wages that you're going to have relative to somebody who didn't go to college is much higher in the United States than it is in most other affluent societies. And in terms of the kind of social world you end up in, it seems like there's this really disjunctive decision point of whether you've gone to college or not. Why is it that in the United States, that is a fundamental class and cultural division, seemingly more so than in other countries. So once again, we're in this same cycle, which is you say why and I say what. So I grew up in Britain. Tony Atkinson was one of my heroes. I spent a lot of my time worrying about Gini coefficients and about the distribution of income and the quantiles and all the rest of it. So what has changed our mind is the data. This is the division that really seems to be happening. And so when we look at the data, it's this educational qualification. And sort of very much on board with stories like Michael Sandel's about this college degree has become a mark of status. It's a mark of an overclass as opposed to the underclass. So that's been very important for us. Another thing that's very important for us is we have this paper a year and two ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looking at race and education. And what's happened is that and I always have to be fairly careful here, that black mortality is higher than white mortality in the United States and always has been as far as the data go back. Up until COVID, there was quite a bit of convergence with black mortality falling faster than white mortality, partly because a lot of white mortality was going up, but they were converging. But if you look within education, the amazing thing is that blacks with the BA are worse mortality than whites with a BA, but they're very close. And blacks without a BA look like whites without a BA. And so that split where education within blacks used to not make any difference. And there's a belief out there in the EPI community that education doesn't do anything for blacks. That's a very outdated perspective. So there's now a huge gap within the black community between educated and non-educated. And I think this is showing up in politics too, that less educated African-Americans are now looking to the Republican Party or looking at sort of dissatisfaction with this democratic alliance that has come between educated whites and educated blacks. So again, it's really the data. The other thing that I think you pretty much summarized that, let me say it again, Europe doesn't have this sharp cutoff between college and non-college in the way that we have in the United States. So that in Britain, for instance, when we, Anne and I went to Britain, we have a group of people we work with there looking at college versus non-college and looking at the death rates there. And the first thing we realized on day one is this college, not college is not the right split off because the qualifications at all sorts of levels and these qualifications qualify you for different sorts of jobs. And in Germany, for instance, you know, you talk to people like us, college professors, they have kids. These kids have decided, well, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to go and do an apprenticeship or something. So there's a much richer array of educational qualifications. And it's always been frustrating when you're looking at the data where you don't have this clean college, non-college cutoff. But in some ways, that's a really good thing because other countries have not set themselves up for the status divide along the four-year college degree divide. One of the things interesting is, you know, some college gives you very little advantage. The people with some college, meaning a junior college, or they didn't actually get a degree, are much closer at high school only in almost all of these metrics than they are to people with a college degree. So you really have to finish. So explain to me exactly what matters in the United States. So you said that what doesn't buy you much is enrolling in a college and then dropping out. That seems to basically put you back to the status of somebody 
who has a high school degree. So that's interesting. What about the quality of the college? If you go to a community college and get a degree there, does that basically take you out of a bracket of the depths of despair and so on? You presumably are going to have lower average earnings than somebody who went to a fancy college. But is that basically enough to put you as the broader part of the American overclass, or what other conditions would you put around it? You're putting two separate things there. Some college in the data includes people who've been to a two-year community college, for instance. So they're much more important than people who went to college and dropped out. And we're confined when we're looking at deaths of despair to what's on the death certificates. And what's on the death certificates is the number of years of education or what qualification you have. You can't tell whether you went to Harvard or whether you went to Michigan State or something, or Bozeman State or Montana State or whatever. So that would be a really interesting thing to know. And it's somewhat surprising because four-year college degree covers a very large number of non-selective colleges. Some of those, the qualifications are worth a lot more or a lot less than others. And you would think that it might really matter, and it might. We don't know the answer to that, and there's no very easy way, in our data at least, for getting at that. Finding that out would be related to figuring out what to do about it. One obvious thought that I had as you were talking about, um, as many people had, is that, look, if in Britain and Germany there's this great variety of educational offerings and there's not the kind of steep fall-off, you know, either you go to this for your college that's quite selective and so on, or you end up being locked out of that overclass that ends up being protected against all kinds of social ills, then, you know, perhaps in, in America, we should create more of those intermediate qualifications and institutions and so on. But I suppose that depends on whether or not people at the sort of lower end of that educational achievement within the four-year category are protected in those ways or not. So I guess, how should we think if one of the problems is this really steep divide between that educational overclass and everybody else in the United States, how should we think about remedying that? That's a really good question, and I'm going to be very speculative now because I don't know the answer to that question. But Anne and I, I think, don't think this is education that's causal here. So getting everybody into college, maybe that would be a good thing, maybe it wouldn't be a good thing, but I don't think it would solve this problem. And a lot of people think that what's happening here is in the hands of employers, that they're using the BA as a cutoff instead of using actual qualifications as a cutoff. And there's a movement afoot, which we very much agree with, which is to hire people. I think Merck, for instance, changed this policy the woman who used to be the CEO of IBM, whose name I've temporarily forgotten, is very much into this. And some people argue that when hiring moved onto the internet, there's a box, do you have a BA or not? And if you don't check that box, you're out. And it used to be, you know, you advertise the job in your locality, you'd get a couple of hundred people, now you get 200,000 people wanting. So you need filters and people are using the BA as a filter. That's certainly possible. I remember talking to someone at Google and saying, do you have any people there that don't have a BA who work for Google anymore? You know, now you've gotten rid of your transport staff, your cooking staff, all the rest of it. Now I say, oh yeah, we have lots of people who don't have a BA. And they said, who are they? They say they're genius programmers who we hire out of high school. But you know, maybe that's a model that we could do elsewhere, which is there's lots of talented kids who are talented in lots of ways, which could be used in the labor market. And we seem to have reduced it to this cutoff. So our guess and the message we're trying to sell is this is not like a BA teaches you how to fly and you can't fly an airplane unless you've trained to be a pilot. This is a BA that seems to be an arbitrary social cutoff and that should be easier to undo if employers realize they're missing people by losing a lot of talented people. And you're making a breakoff by someone who went to Podunk State um, versus someone who's very talented who suddenly decided, well, I don't feel like going to college, you know, I like writing code or something. And I think that would help make a better world. 
So just to understand what you're saying here, when you're saying that education is not causal, there are sort of different ways of understanding it, right? One is to say that it's not causal because perhaps there's a selection effect for the people who are able to obtain four-year BA degrees have a set of social and cognitive skills and perhaps a form of delayed gratification and all of those kinds of things that then also make them successful in the job market and make them capable of sustaining social networks and so on. And it sounds like that's not the argument you're making, right? What you're sort of saying is that it's not about what you learn in the process of the education. It's really about the degree that it gives you. So in that sense, it's causal in the sense that like having the certificate is causal, but it's not the sort of educational experience that is causal. I try to avoid using the word causal at all costs because I've spent a lot of time with philosophers and other people who think hard about causality and social scientists are terrible at this because causality is a really complicated thing for the things you're just saying. There's lots of things going on here and you can label almost anything causal at some point, but it doesn't really help you understand what's going on. But we don't think it's selection. And I think the literature on deaths of despair and other things suggests that selection into education has not been a big deal. And also selection can't really help explain the gaps between people because if more people go to college, <laughs> that, takes away healthy people from the bottom, making the bottom group worse off. It also imports less healthy people into the top group, making them less well off too. And so the effect on the gap between them is not really very well designed. But there's some technical work in a number of papers in both the social and economic literature suggesting that selection is not really a big deal here. So it's more like labeling, it's credentialing or something you know, which is an old idea that's been around. It's people are interpreting it as a signal, but it's not a very good signal, I think. So the idea, for example, that people like Governor Shapiro, I believe in Pennsylvania, have had of saying, we're going to stop as a public employer demanding BA degrees, and we're going to encourage other kinds of employers to put less emphasis on that. Do you think that could potentially make a real difference? Yeah, I think it would make a huge difference. It would also make a huge difference if we could reduce the price of healthcare, <laughs> you know, so we didn't have this huge tax on employment. And also very much in favor of trying to bring some jobs back here. Let's stay for a moment with the cost of healthcare. I'm sort of struck in the debate about this by the way in which people never talk about one driver of health costs. And I know that it's not the main driver, but it does seem to be significant, which is simply the wages of doctors. When I compare what close friends of mine in Italy who are doctors make to what an average doctor makes in the United States, I mean, it is just a giant difference. And at some basic level, if you need healthcare, you need the time of doctors and other medical professionals. And if they are not twice as much as you, as might be the case in a place like Italy, but 10 or 20 times as much as you, as is often going to be the case in the United States, that is just very quickly going to be unaffordable. So I guess when we're thinking about how to rein in the cost of healthcare, I know there's going to be many things that we want to focus on beyond that, but is it ever going to be possible without dealing with some of those wage problems, which are always out of a discussion, even when very progressive economists talk about single-payer healthcare or Medicare for all and so on, is there the political will in particularly the kind of political class in America, which is all highly educated and has many friends who've invested their time into medical school and so on, to actually take on that naughty part of a problem? It's a really good question. There's a recent National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, which you may have heard about. The Washington Post wrote it up. And they actually discovered the salaries of every physician in America. And you can see them all listed there. And what you say is exactly right. They make enormous sums of money compared to doctors in other countries. The paper, I haven't read it all in detail, but it's quite recent. It's quite apologetic, though. It says, this is what lawyers earn, too. You know, this is how much we have to pay doctors. It takes them a long time to go to school and all the rest of it, all of which is true. And doctors get paid relatively a lot in most countries. So even if you go to Sweden, they're relatively well paid. One of the things, though, that I think is very important here is the AMA is allowed to control access to medical school. So we also have too few doctors in the country, right? 
Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, if, if that were opened up, and it's very interesting, if you think of workers, you know, in car factories, they had to face competition from abroad, they had to face importation of Japanese cars and Italian cars and Mercedes. Doctors don't put up with any of that. So, of course, it's not at all clear. I mean, and this is another part of the story, which is this educated elite is very much better at controlling its own environment than ordinary working class people are. And some of that is because working class people have lost political power. There are no unions anymore. There are very little representation in Washington. And Google spends more than all of the unions put together in lobbying and so on. So you've got a very stacked system in favor of this educated elite. One educated elite, incidentally, that's not so protected are academics. So my department in Cambridge has about 30 different countries of birth in there. So that's one part that's not protected, but there's much more protection against foreigners. So that would be one thing we could do. And it's interesting, the AMA is very left-wing when it comes to the social causes of health, <laughs> but it's not left-wing when it comes to working on doctor's salaries at all. I think that may change, partly because there's now a very large number of doctors who are not paid all that much. There are a lot more women in that profession than there used to be. And I think the body of doctors is moving further towards more progressive solutions to that. But, you know, hospitals are the big players in there. If you want to open a hospital in New Jersey, you have to get a certificate of need from the state. And any other hospital can block the construction of a new hospital. And every time hospitals merge, their prices go up. So there's a lot of abuse going on there. A few months ago, I would have said hospitals are not doing very much. And obviously hospitals and healthcare in general don't have much to do with alcoholism or drug deaths or, you know, these are behavioral issues. But one thing Anna and I have been looking at recently and is in the Brookings paper is when Nixon declared war on cancer, there'd been almost no change in cancer mortality for the previous 20 years and there was none for the next 20 years. But since 1990, cancer mortality rates have been falling quite rapidly. And that really is healthcare. It's to do with screening, it's to do with drugs. There's a lot of very new, very expensive drugs. And what is happening there is interesting is, once again, there's progress for people with and without a BA, but the progress for people with a BA against cancer is hugely more rapid. So it used to be, for instance, you took breast cancer, a major killer among women. Educated women were more likely to die of breast cancer than less educated women. That's not true anymore. That's true of ovarian cancer too. The rapid improvements from cancer have accrued mostly to the educated class. So that's something healthcare is doing something. So you have a new book out, which is called Economics in America, An Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. You've covered, I think, a lot of what you talk about in the book, but how should we think about inequality in this moment in America and more broadly over the course of the last decade or two? I'm sort of a little bit confused about how to think about some of the big paradigms of the last 10 or 20 years. So when you look at 10 years ago, there was this sort of great moment of pessimism about the state of our economics. You know, David Autour was talking in the American context about how the middle was sort of caving in and you had these very successful affluent people with four-year college degrees and so on. And then you had real wage stagnation at the bottom and a lot of people from the middle falling towards the bottom of society. You had Branko Milanovic's elephant curve, arguing that at a kind of global level, you know, there was some improvement in the middle and a little bit of improvement for the poorest in, around the world. And the very, very rich were doing excellently, but a sort of 70 or 80th percentile globally were not doing very well. And a lot of those were actually less affluent people in places like the United States. And then, of course, you had Thomas Piketty's claim that there is just these sort of large-scale forces pulling us towards inequality, including the fact that the returns to uh, capital just outpace the returns to labor. And in different ways, it strikes me that each of these paradigms has been 
updated or sometimes put in question, right? David Artur has a new paper that has to do, of course, with the pandemic and with some of the economic policies of the Biden administration that shows that actually wages have now started to increase very significantly for less uh, educated, less skilled workers, and that actually they have done so more for the last few years, at least, than for the most highly qualified, most educated, most affluent workers in the United States. Branko Milanovic has updated the elephant curve a few years ago with data reaching not to 2008, but I think to 2018. And it showed that the picture is much more positive, that actually the poorest have benefited the most over the last 20 or 30 years around the world. The middle has benefited quite a bit, and the richest have actually benefited less. And then there's a big, complicated debate about Piketty's finding, with some economists buying it, with some economists being more skeptical about his general framework. But he himself has sounded quite a bit more optimistic in some of his recent work. So how, I guess, should we think about this economic moment? How optimistic or pessimistic should we be about the broader shape of our economic trajectory? As you say, these things come and go. And I've studied inequality all my life, and it's a very shape-changing sort of thing. The focus on it is different at different times. Let me start with the author finding and other people, too, about how think the bottom has been doing relatively well recently, and that's great, and we're all very cheered by that. The real question is how long it will last. There's a graph and case in my book which looks at labor force participation and wages of people without a four-year degree, and it always does well in good times, and then the good times end. <laughs> and you go down the other side. And then when the next good time comes, it's never as high as it was in the last good time. So maybe that pattern will have changed, but it's much too early to say. I mean, we have a very tight labor market. We have a very strange economy right now in which no one can really agree on what's going on. And this is great. Everything good that happens to these people is deserved, and let's hope it lasts forever, but we don't have that evidence yet. So we don't have the evidence that the long-term pattern that we talked about has been broken. And I'm skeptical of that. Corporate power is still very large and so on. One of the things that's encouraging too, you didn't mention is there's been a resurgence in union activity and there's a strike going on in Hollywood and there's a strike being threatened in the auto industry. And if union power grows again, that may help change things too. But one of the things I've learned over the years, coming back to the more general question, is that there are many, many dimensions of inequality. And um, I think at the fundamental level, this idea of relational inequality, of people being treated differently, of people being second class as opposed to first class citizens, is ultimately more important than income or wealth inequality. And I think, you know, this thing that we've been talking about, about people without a BA becoming second-class citizens is an example of relational inequality gotten out of hand. And to me, I see that as very, very important because these people are being deprived of political power. There's a sort of intellectual elite that has been running the country for a really long time and ignoring the demands of those people. And the danger is in the end that they're going to come for us with pitchforks, you know, with an orange-headed leader at their head. And I think that's a very dangerous situation. That's a lot of what I write about towards the end of the book, is I think economists have gotten a lot of things wrong, and they've been too persuaded by libertarians, by Chicago School in particular. They've overemphasized what markets can do and ignored too much what markets cannot do. And that to some extent, you know, my profession is at fault there. And I think it's changing a little bit now, but it's changing slowly. And there's a big war going on in the profession, as I'm sure you're aware. So a lot of the book is personal. You describe coming to the United States in the 1980s and both your love for America and your disappointment with some of the changes in the country. Do you feel that on this crucial count of relational equality, America was different when you arrived than it is now? And if so, what's the nature of that difference? If what really matters is relational equality 
And one of the ills of this moment is that we have a new kind of inequality, right? A new level of inequality. What is it that made us incapable of sustaining that relational equality that I suppose we must to some extent once have had? I think we're much more divided than we were in 1980. I mean, I came in, I visited for a year in 1979-80. I was around when Reagan was getting elected. And, you know, that period from 1980 through to now is a period in which there really was a redistribution, not just of income, though that was very strong in the first decade of that period from early 80s through to 90s, but a distribution of political and relational power so that the middle class, the blue color aristocracy, which I guess had vanished a little bit before then, but the final nail in that coffin to the point where ordinary working people really, you know, were being marginalized all the way. And this went through the Clinton administration, the Obama administration too. I mean, there was this sense that I guess Gary Gessler calls it the neoliberal age or whatever, or in Blair, it was the middle way in Britain. There was this sense that we could trust markets much more than they did. But I think it was George Orwell who said the problem with competition is someone wins. <laughs> and I think that the sort of competition in markets, which delivered a lot of growth, also led to corporate winning and working people significantly being left behind. And these kind of relational questions, I think, are often at the heart of things that otherwise are difficult to quite make sense of. One of the things I'm always struck by is the conviction that many of my friends have in the United States, for example, that teachers make extremely little money. And when you look at a comparison of earnings of teachers across the OECD, that simply turns out to be wrong. American teachers earn among the most in the OECD. But where the problem lies, I think, is a lack of relational equality to their imagined and perceived peer group, which is to say, you know, if you go to college and your friend decides to become a lawyer or a doctor and you become a teacher, you know, you might make less money in France or Germany than your colleague, but you're going to be broadly part of a comparable social world. Whereas in the United States, you might make more money than the teacher does in France or Germany, but that suggests that you would, but you're going to make a ton less money than your friend who goes on to become a doctor or a lawyer. And so you feel that lack of relational equality very, very deeply. But the question of how to build more relational equality is, of course, hard because it isn't part about money. I think a certain discrepancy of how much money you have makes it harder to have genuine relational equality, but it's about much more than that. And it's particularly hard to see how a political party that has effectively become the party of the highly educated and often the party of the affluent is going to be a historical motor for that equality, right? We have very interesting data from the United States, but also from other countries around the world that most left-wing parties now have gone from being the party of people who are likely to have less formal education and to earn less to often being the party of people who have more education, who earn more. So what would a left-wing politics that actually fights for a society that facilitates relational equality look like? I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that. It's always the weakest part of the arguments we make about this with despair and all this bad stuff. So what do you do about it? And in some sense, I resist that because, you know, what I say or what you say about this... <laughs> You know, we can document it, we can talk about it, and we can write about it. And I think that has an effect on the debate, and I think that's important. But it's not for us to imagine the future, because the future will be determined by these forces that are going on in American politics today. You know, you've got this very strange Republican Party, which is a coalition between populists on the one hand, and the corporate interests on the other that are causing the populism on the other. So it's very unclear how that can be stable. You're more into these things than I am, but I don't know how that can be stable. And yet you've got this elite, which is sort of a coalition of educated minorities and educated white people who are not paying any attention. 
and to mouth all these things about inequality. And in fact, inequality is a sort of escape from them because they can worry about poverty and income inequality and ignore the relational inequality that they're very much a part of. So it's very hard to see what the future is going to look like. But I'm encouraged. I mean, these ideas, I mean, I think there's a ferment in ideas going on at the same time there's ferment in politics. I think there are a lot of economists who are really thinking about the role of markets and, you know, rethinking things like industrial or place-based policy. They're wondering about whether we got trade right, especially during hyper-globalization. There's a real concern about whether we gave the banks too much power to do whatever they wanted to do. And I think that's all to the good. So that intellectual work that's being done will help lay the groundwork for people who are actually going to change things. But I don't think you and I are the people who are going to change things. I have one last strand of your research that I must ask you about, which is connected to the idea that having more money makes you much happier at lower levels of income, but it makes very little or perhaps no difference at higher levels of income. I know there's been a debate in the literature about the extent to which that's true at higher levels of income. So what is the key insight here? And what kind of answer do you give to this question in light of this lively debate that you inspired in the latest research. If you are making relatively good money and you have a job offer that might allow you to make more money, but you're not sure you're going to love the job more, you know, how should you think about this? Is this going to help you be happier or is the extra compensation likely to be irrelevant to your well-being? The recent debate is not something I've participated in, partly because I haven't parsed that apart to be sure I know exactly what's going on. But I think one of the key ideas of the original work was that we use happiness in many different ways. And there's a happiness which is to do with, it's an affect. You know, you're having a good time now, and it's perhaps best classified where you're sitting with friends, watching a sporting event, and your team is winning or something. That would be a good sense of happiness. And that sort of happiness is certainly corrupted if you don't have any money. You can't afford a television. You can't afford to go out with friends. That sort of socializing on which I think happiness really does depend is dependent on having some money at least. The other thing is, and this is a bit worrisome in this whole literature, is the sense that there's a, a sense of life evaluation which is different from happiness. So you could ask, how is your life going? And one of the examples I give there is, which is not mine, but is you might be attending the funeral of a favorite uncle who's lived to be 100 and has had a very full life. And so you're very sad. You would be outraged if someone asked you if you were happy. On the other hand, if someone asked you, how is your life going? You could say, well, this is life. This is fine. My life is going the way it ought to do. And I think that distinction is really very important. And I think everybody in this debate has agreed that that sort of happiness, that sort of life satisfaction, seems to go on rising with money. And maybe that's the one that really counts. On the other hand, the worry about that is that we're simply recoding income. So when you say, how is your life going? People say, well, how much did I earn last year? And respond on, on that way. So it's a messy field, even though I know that people are very interested in it. That's interesting because it's a little bit different from what people, I think, might naively expect, which is to say that they might say, look, the kind of more moment-to-moment -moment happiness, that might keep rising with money. Because the more money you have, the more cool experiences you can buy, the more cool stuff you can own. And perhaps that keeps making you a little bit happier, even at the margin. But when it comes to the stuff that matters, you know, do you have meaningful relationships? Are you happy with how you're spending your life? Do you have children? And do you have a good relationship with them? That kind of happiness money can't buy, right? But what you're implying, if I understand you correctly, is a little bit the other way around, that actually the sort of hedonistic pleasures are in an affluent society relatively easy to buy. But if you, you know, have to work two or three minimum wage jobs in order to make rent and you don't have the time all the resources to go and head to the bar of your buddies when you're not going to have that. But, you know, once you're out of the woods in that, you know, you're going to be as happy drinking a cheap beer in the local bar 
watching the game with your friends than perhaps sitting in a box with fancier people at the actual sporting event or something like that. But interestingly, that kind of deeper form of life satisfaction, do you feel like your life has gone well and you have these meaningful relationships and all of that stuff, that does keep rising with money. Isn't that surprising? I actually had the privilege of going to Wimbledon and sitting in the Royal Box one day, and it was great. <laughs> so, and also, that's something money can't buy at all, because there's no way you can get an invitation to go to the Royal Box by buying it. So I'm not sure where that takes us in this argument. I think everything you say is potentially right. You know, when Danny Kahneman and I wrote that paper, we were describing what we saw in the data. I think that we would all agree, you were saying about money bringing more hedonic happiness, whether that's true or not, I think we're all agreed that lack of money can destroy hedonic happiness. I mean, I grew up really quite poor especially in the years after I left school and was at college and so on. I really worried about money incessantly. And that is very, very destructive. And I think there's really good work in psychology and elsewhere on documenting just what that does to people. And people who don't really have enough to make ends meet have their lives destroyed by that. And that actually may be worse than much poorer people in poor countries who've evolved a lifestyle somehow that works around that. Obviously, if you don't have enough to eat and your kids are starving and all the rest of it, that's, you know, a horrible, horrible situation. But part of this is clearly socially determined, too. Angus Deaton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.